welcome to today's episode of the UCF podcast on herd immunity. I am Gary and next to me is Lena. Our topic today will be the concept of herd immunity in times of COVID-19. Based on the recent announcement by the Dutch Prime Minister to achieve herd immunity and the resulting debate, you will find here all the necessary information to understand this very complex topic and to form an opinion on it. Additionally, we have interviewed an expert on the topic to give us some more insights. Our expert for today is Jaap Koot. He is a medical doctor specialized in tropical medicine and global health. He works for the University Medical Center of Groningen in the Netherlands. He advises international organizations on health and has more than 40 years of expertise in the field. As all of you know, we are living through a pandemic. COVID-19 has shaken up our lives. But first of all, what exactly is COVID-19? It has been announced to be a pandemic, which means that it is, I'm quoting, a disease that is clearly in excess of normal expectancy and is spread over a whole geographical area, usually crossing national boundaries. So basically, it is a disease that has spread very rapidly and very far, more than expected. Naturally, we are now looking for a way to get out of this pandemic, to no- lower the impact and spread of the disease. One suggested way to tackle the virus that has been mentioned is something called developing herd immunity. Herd immunity seems to be a reasonable strategy on fighting a virus such as COVID-19. The Dutch government and the RIVM, the National Institute for Public Health and the Environment of the Netherlands, have expressed an interest in building up herd immunity. So, what is herd immunity? Is it really a reasonable strategy to fight a pandemic? To find that out, we will first talk you through some basic concepts and will then delve deeper into the complexity of achieving herd immunity. So what is herd immunity? It is the idea that a large part of the population is immune to the virus because they have built up antibodies in their blood. When you are immune, you are not able to transmit the virus to others. As a result, the virus against which herd immunity has been built up cannot spread amongst the population and there will only be few to no cases of the disease. To visualize this, picture someone without immunity as a red dot surrounded by yellow immune dots. If the red dot can't connect to any other red dots, there is herd immunity. It is a concept that has been around for a long time and can develop either naturally through a significant part of the population getting infected, or through injecting enough people with a vaccine that creates antibodies in their blood. Herd immunity is important in the relationship between the host population and the disease because it shows susceptibility of the population to the disease. We can say that the society is immune when the disease spreads across it and makes the proportion of the population immune. But What percentage of immune individuals need to be there for herd immunity to operate? That depends on the disease and the population. Furthermore, there are two conditions for herd immunity to exist. The first is that the transmission of the pathogen occurs in only one host species. This is because every individual that is not vaccinated may otherwise easily catch the disease from other sources, meaning the immune population does not prevent unvaccinated people from getting sick if non-immune people are exposed to the disease through other transmitters. Secondly, disease transmission needs to be more or less direct between the hosts, for example, by an individual talking to another one or drinking from the same cup. In other words, herd immunity works when the chance of an infected person meeting every other individual in the society is equal. As a last point concerning the concept of herd immunity is to know how we could measure whether a certain population group has attained herd immunity. There are two ways to do that, direct and indirect. The direct way measures antibodies in a sample group study, 
Whereas in the indirect way, you look at how frequently the disease still occurs, which can tell you more about the reproduction number of the population. And from that, you can make conclusions on the immunity number in the population. Both have the disadvantage that they are not precise and that they generalize. But to have the exact percentage of immunity in a population, you need to test everyone for antibodies. So what is the advantage of building up herd immunity against COVID-19? It is important to remember that there are groups of people which depend on herd immunity. For example, the people whose immune system does not work fully, such as people um, on chemotherapy treatment whose immune system is weakened, people with HIV, newborn unvaccinated babies, elderly people, people with asthma, and many individuals with other illnesses. In times of coronavirus, all of these people are at higher risk of dying when they get COVID-19. Their bodies are simply not as strong as others to fight the virus. Herd immunity amongst the population would protect the vulnerable people from acquiring the disease. Any number of immunity in the population would already lower the risk of others catching the disease. Though, this is only the case when these people have become immune. So once they fought the virus off, when they are still in the face of the disease being transmittable, they are not immune yet and still pose a risk for the people in their environment. As we mentioned, there are actually two ways of achieving herd immunity, naturally and through a vaccine. I guess the Minister of the Netherlands did not have the vaccine in mind when stating that he wants to achieve herd immunity. The less common approach in reality, but actually the version everyone thinks of, is attaining herd immunity in a natural way. That means that people would just continue their life as normal as possible and through the spreading of the disease, people will get infected and as a natural reaction of their body to the virus, it will create antibodies. These antibodies make you immune to the disease so you cannot get infected a second time, but also when you are recovered, you cannot infect another person. Yes, and for that to happen, it is important that the disease is distributed equally in society among all people. Then, the chance of meeting a person with immunity is equally high and the chain of infection gets interrupted. But, before that happens, we will actually see what we have seen at the beginning of our crisis. An exponential increase in the number of cases. That was really shocking. It spreads very quickly because people easily infect each other. COVID-19 is transmitted via small droplets from mouth or nose and then breathed in by the other person. So as a result, more people are infected in a shorter time. And this also has a consequence for herd immunity, since it spreads very quickly and you have a high chance to get infected, more people need to be immune to achieve herd immunity. It has been calculated that approximately 70% of the population need to have been infected and immune to COVID-19 to protect the other 30% of the population. Actually, a bit contradictory when you think that you want to protect the population with herd immunity, but for that, more than half of the population need to be infected with it. But let's get get to that later in the discussion. During our interview with Yab Code, we found out that there would now be two approaches of attaining herd immunity in a natural way. They differ in the time it takes to attain herd immunity. We can either achieve it in a short period of time, which would require many fatalities, or we can contain the number of cases as it is promoted with the idea of flattening the curve, and then it takes a longer time. Though, I think you mentioned the short-term approach rather jokingly. Yes, let's listen to what he said. Uh, the, the role of hospitals, of course, is, is, is treating sick patients. 
Um, and, and the whole purpose of flattening the curve um, is to reduce the number of new cases um, to a level that the ho hospital and the healthcare service in general is not overburdened. Uh, so the flattening the curve uh, takes care of um, our hospital capacity and tries to stay uh, below the max that the hospital can handle. Um, so in, in fact, uh, if you really want to achieve herd immunity in a, in a short term, uh, you better don't control the epidemic because then quickly many people get infected and, and get uh, immune. But of course, then many people will die because the hospital uh, cannot handle the cases. So flattening the curve is in fact uh, making uh, reaching uh, herd immunity more difficult and it will take a uh, much longer time. Well, I think he makes it obvious that there is no way of getting rid of corona in a quick way by making many people immune. That would probably result in many people dying. We have seen already in Italy that they needed to decide who will get the lung ventilator and who has such a low chance of surviving that they will not get the devices. These are decisions doctors then actually face. That makes me get goosebumps. Imagine deciding over a life of a person. I would never want to be in that position. Luckily, governments set up all the lockdown measures to not overburden the hospitals. And, as Yabkot said, the idea of flattening the curve will not stop corona from spreading completely, and it also will not build up herd immunity in a short period of time. But at least every patient can get a good treatment here in the Netherlands I agree with you on that. The lockdown measures are there to enable everyone who needs an intensive care unit to get one and get the treatment they require. The problem is that for many people, this lockdown strains them mentally and or economically. So they are looking for an alternative to protect those that are very endangered by Corona and at the same time enable people that are not at high risk to continue a rather normal life. So that is why the inverse quarantine has been proposed. The idea is to lock up that people of high-risk groups and the other low-risk group continues business as usual and thus allows the spread of COVID-19. This should then result in herd immunity with a low number of fatalities. However, there are multiple critical points and Yapcoat nicely pointed out why in real life, this will not be a feasible approach. Yeah, that, that is a theoretical approach that uh, is maybe a textbook approach. But what did we see in practice is that the most vulnerable people in the nursing homes um, who have the nursing care from people who live in society, the, the nurses and, and, and caretakers, that many of the people in the nursing homes got infected because uh, of that contact with the people who are taking care of them. Uh, so it is very, very difficult to uh, really protect vulnerable groups. And of course, uh, you, you can say that people um, who are more vulnerable should uh, be very careful um, not to get in, in, in contact with, uh, with people who, who are... Uh, infectious. So, so, yes, it is important that um, older people and people who have uh, chronic diseases um, are, are not being exposed to the virus. Um, so, some of the countries take measures advising uh, older people to stay home, but if you um, should do that in a mandatory way or more voluntary way, that depends also a bit on the culture uh, of the country. Um, but the idea that you can protect vulnerable people um, by locking them up and letting the other people free and, and build up herd immunity um, is more a kind of textbook wisdom than based on, on real life experience. So while it definitely means that we should isolate people with weakened immune systems, Inverse quarantine does not seem to be an effective approach. 
In addition to that, I think it will also be difficult to determine who is a high-risk group. Sometimes people do not ex expect to be badly affected, but in the end, they will need an intensive care unit, or the other way around. Plus, it will make this group very susceptible. At the beginning, we pointed out that for good herd immunity, immunity needs to be distributed equally through the population. With inverse quarantine, that would not be given. You know what I would be really interested in? How are the current immunity levels in our population right now? We constantly talk about reaching a certain level of immunity. But where are we right now after approximately two and a half months later that Corona has now reached the Netherlands? Yes, I thought that this would come up, so we interviewed our expert Jakob on this. Let's listen to what he said. Measuring immunity levels uh, in the population re requires, of course, a different type of research than we are doing now. Uh, we, we are now um, testing mainly people who are infected uh, with a different uh, type of test. We don't uh, test if they uh, have antibodies. Um, so that is a se separate type of study. Um, we have in the Netherlands... Uh, a test where our uh, Sun Queen, the, the blood transfusion uh, institution, is uh, measuring uh, an, among their um, blood donors. Uh, and indeed, the latest publication was around 3%. Uh, but of course, this, that is not a, a representative sample of the population. Um, there are now some studies in areas where um, there have been... Uh, uh, a lot of transmission, uh, and for example, in Kessel, that's that's a small town in in the Netherlands. Um, they are doing now a study to see um, levels of antibody. Um, they have done a study in in Stockholm, uh, where there was a lot of uh, transmission, um, and and there you see um, higher levels, um, maybe uh, around 10, 20 percent. But that's still far from herd immunity. So what we need to do now is, is to set up large-scale studies to, to see how uh, immunity is in the population, to know exactly where we are. So for now, we have concentrated on um, testing for sick people so that we can uh, isolate them. Um, and we uh, are not yet in a stage that we are testing for um, knowing the, the immunity levels in the population. What he points out here is that measuring immunity levels is incredibly hard. Since we are focused on controlling the spread of the disease, we mostly test if people are currently infected with the disease. This could explain symptoms and would help to isolate the spread. However, many people who get sick do not get tested. And there are also many people who don't even feel sick but might still be infected with the coronavirus. The current number of confirmed corona cases in the Netherlands is around 44,000. This is not even close to 1% of the total population. Knowing how many people are immune is practically impossible. As Jaap said, we need more large-scale studies to find out. Lack of information is a serious problem in defining the effectiveness of a strategy like herd immunity. He also mentioned we are still far away from reaching the approximately 70% of immunity to achieve herd immunity in the Netherlands, even in areas where there were many cases of corona. Still, the level of immunity reached a maximum of 20% which does not equal herd immunity. And that brings me back to our thoughts earlier. We already have an incredible rise in people infected, at least in absolute numbers. If in the end, 70% of the people have acquired immunity naturally by getting infected with the disease, is that then actually a preventive strategy to cope with the virus? I mean, 70% of the Dutch population means a bit more than 12 million people is that what he wanted? 
No, not really. You're pointing out an important aspect. In the end, natural herd immunity is not a strategy that will protect many people. Only 30% of the population will be safe and the rest would have to face the risk of getting infected with COVID-19. So you cannot really force herd immunity to happen. Instead, herd immunity is something that will occur naturally with every disease. As a result, officials in the Netherlands have also clarified that building herd immunity is not a strategy or a goal in itself, as it might have been perceived by the comment of the Dutch Prime Minister. Rather, it is something that will occur naturally as more and more people get infected. That is also what our expert pointed out. It, it is a, a more or less um, normal way of developing uh, in, a, in a disease. Um, normally, uh, when disease uh, are spreading, um, then people get infected and, and build up um, immunity. Um, in this specific case uh, of uh, COVID-19, um, we are not yet sure about how immunity is built up and if it is uh, long-lasting. But uh, in the long run, many people will get infected um, and uh, will build, build up some immunity. Um, we, we have that for other diseases as well. Um, for example, in flu, there's a, a lot of immunity, but uh, due to um, the constant uh, mutations of the flu virus, um, that immunity is not complete. Um, but the natural course of a disease is that you will build up uh, immunity and that um, when many people are infected over a period of time, that then many people will build up that immunity. Um, for herd immunity, um, you must have uh, the, the majority of the population uh, ha having uh, immunity so that uh, the few who are not having immunity are protected more or less by being hidden in the crowd. Um, and, and whether that will be achieved in a short period of time or in a longer period of time, um, that, that is dependent on, on the course of the disease. Hold on a second. He said that immunity doesn't necessarily mean that we are immune for long. What does he mean with that? Well, indeed, there are two factors of uncertainty you have after you have acquired the antibodies and are immune. For instance, you might have heard about people getting infected twice leading to the question on how long one stays immune once immunity is acquired. And secondly, the possibility that there will be slight changes to COVID-19, making us vulnerable again. Since the virus is very new, there are many uncertainties regarding immunity. Jabkot highlighted that in our interview. Um, with, with regard to immunity, uh, we, we are not yet sure uh, whether uh, people built up uh, immunity uh, and how they built up immunity. Um, there are now reports that maybe people who get uh, uh, very uh, slight symptoms, just a bit of cough and, and one day not feeling well, that they don't build up so much immunity, that people who are... Uh, more seriously ill, built up more immunity. Um, there are some reports of people who get the disease twice, but we really, really um, need to study much more uh, because uh, these are just more or less anecdotal evidence. And for example, in cases where a patient gets uh, uh, COVID twice, maybe the first uh, diagnosis was not properly done or the test was not properly done uh, so that it came out positive but in, in fact the patient had just a flu and then the second time really gets COVID. So um, we, we really need much more study to know about how we built up immunity and um, what uh, the effects are for the long term if, if that immunity lasts for many years or just for a short period of time. So what he's saying is that since the disease has not been around for long, 
We do not know for sure how long the antibodies stay in our system. It can be a month, it can be forever. Tests that prove exactly how long antibodies last have not given definite results yet. It is important to remember that it is dynamic in its nature because individuals may lose immunity over time. This is called immunosenescence and happens when the immunological memory is weakened and our bodies lose the ability to respond to a certain disease and fight it. If that would be the case, it might also be a limitation to building up natural herd immunity. And the second problem related to immunity is that over time the disease could mutate, like you have said with the flu. New strains of the virus can develop. What do you mean with that, strains of the virus? That means small variations in the DNA, which is sort of the idea of the virus, can occur. If that happens, people that were immune against the other COVID variation can get affected again, because the virus is now different. So, as it is with the flu, the next year you might get infected and get sick again. Unfortunately, we do not know if that will really be the case for COVID-19. Well, that makes the situation indeed very uncertain. So if, even if we would build up herd immunity against COVID-19, it might be that new variations develop against which herd immunity has not been developed, or the antibodies do not even stay in our bodies long enough to protect us lifelong against it. So when considering building up herd immunity and assessing future plans on how to cope with COVID-19, these facts should be considered. And as Jakob mentioned, more research is needed. Until now, it seemed a little like a hopeless case that we cannot achieve herd immunity soon enough to protect the vulnerable groups and that lockdown is our only way of not reaching the full capacity of the hospitals. But, as mentioned in the very beginning, there is another way of achieving herd immunity. It is not the natural way, but it is through a vaccine. Vaccines can be strategically used to make people immune without putting them at too high risk and without them being actually sick. With a vaccine, there will be less deaths and much less cases that burden the healthcare system. Indeed, most of the herd immunity in certain diseases we have nowadays is through vaccination of large population groups. That is, for example, how we manage to eliminate smallpox. The WHO conducted a vaccination program globally, which led to herd immunity. This herd immunity was so effective that those people who had not been vaccinated did not get into contact with people that had the disease. That way, smallpox finally died out and we do not need smallpox vaccination anymore. That is definitely a great example. However, we are facing some difficulties in achieving herd immunity through a vaccine for the case of COVID-19. The first one being that there is no vaccine yet since the virus is so new. It really has been discovered only in November 2019. However, many institutes and companies are working hard on finding a vaccine. The problem with finding an appropriate vaccine is that it usually takes 15 to 20 years. This is the time between first reported cases and the vaccine being declared safe to enter the market and be available for everyone. Because there are many steps and safety measurements taken until you can put a product on the market. Not only do they have to test the effectiveness of the vaccine on the virus, they also have to do a lot of clinical trials to test for side effects and other dangers this vaccine can bring along. An advantage we have with COVID-19 is that it is very similar to the SARS and MERS virus we had in the beginning of the 21st century. Scientists can use the research that has been done at that time and build on it. But we still do not know if finding a vaccine can take as, a, as quick as a couple of months or rather many years. Additionally, it will take some time to equip hospitals with enough vaccines and for everyone to get vaccinated. To wrap it up, 
vaccination also takes some time to develop herd immunity in the population. But once a vaccine is found, this way of herd immunity is faster than naturally attaining it. Indeed. But as with natural herd immunity, once attained, there are still some uncertainties, like the possibility that COVID-19 will mutate and create new strains strains is still there. And then the vaccine will also not protect a person from these new viruses. However, the problem of losing resistance to the original COVID-19 virus can be resolved by refreshing the immunity through repeated vaccination. So far, we have already mentioned the Netherlands a few times. The Dutch government has expressed the goal of achieving herd immunity, which led us to making this podcast. Some complexities we have mentioned about achieving herd immunity is the capacity of hospitals and how that influences the control of the virus and therefore also the time it takes to achieve herd immunity. Let's shortly have a look at how previously mentioned facts influence the approach to managing COVID-19 by looking more closely at the Netherlands. On the 27th of February, the very first confirmed case of corona was reported in the Netherlands. On the 12th of March, during a press conference, the Dutch government announced strict measures to contain the spread of the virus. All events were cancelled and people had to work from home from that moment on. Universities closed. Fears for the hospitals not being able to handle the heavily growing number of corona cases led the government to intensify measures. From the 5th of March uh, on, most shops and all cafes and restaurants closed. On the 16th of March, the day later, Mark Rutte first announced the so-called intelligent lockdown for the Netherlands. And he said that, based on the advice of experts, they want to delay the spread of the virus and at the same time build up population immunity in a controlled manner and the bigger the group that acquires immunity the smaller the chance that the virus can make the leap to vulnerable people. The prime minister has stated that they do not want the entire country down or at least not for long because of its serious consequences to the economy. Almost a month later, on the 8th of April, the number of patients on the ICU started declining and rumors of loosening the measures appeared. From the 11th of May, the life for kids under 12 went back to normal. They can play outside again, do sports and clubs and go to school. Time has proven that kids are much less susceptible to the virus than other age groups. Giving more freedom to kids in society is a decision that can be related to the wish to slowly have the population attain herd immunity in a controlled manner. The Dutch government chose to balance a strict control with minor freedom. Compared to other countries, the Dutch approach is maybe the least restrictive. Is this a smart approach, though? And how do countries decide what approach is best for them? Of course, if you talk from the point of view uh, of a virologist uh, you want to to maybe have an absolute lockdown and uh, cut all possibilities of transmission uh, so uh, then uh, you you may come to very strict measures um, but we live in a society and and we are human beings and we are dependent on economic activity uh, so what is ideal for the virologist as measure to cut transmission is not ideal for the society um, to continue. Uh, and, and we all see the economic uh, downturns right now. So um, there's an uh, opposing interest between the medicals who want to control the epidemic uh, and and more the economic part of society that mm-hmm. wants to keep uh, the society alive. So um, there is uh, something that has a trade-off between one and the other. Um, so what is happening now and what you see, in fact, in most countries is that once there's a very quick spread of the disease, we are inclined more to accept what the medics are saying so that we can 
keep the outbreak under control and not overburden the health system. But when we come to a certain level where it is at an acceptable level for the healthcare system, we uh, look more at the economic and social uh, part of it. And that's the stage where we are in now in, in many European countries. So um, we are slowly releasing the, the strict measures and allowing more freedom of people to move around. But then, of course, we run the risk of more transmission. And, and that is very important uh, to control and to go back to that uh, approach of testing and contact tracing and isolating people who are infected. And for example, this weekend I was in, in Seoul, these uh, clubs where, where one person infected more than 20 others by um, going from, from one nightclub to the other. They are closing down now in Seoul again, the nightclubs, and they are tracing all the people who were in that uh, nightclub to, um, to isolate them. So that is the kind of approach that is necessary once you um, soften the measures, that, that you are able to uh, test and control and, and make sure um, that uh, the people who are infectious are, are isolated. So um, there is not one best approach um, that works. Um, it is, first of all, dependent on the stage where the epidemic is. Is it in a, in a early stage, a uh, high outbreak level stage? Is it in a declining uh, epidemic? You must take the appropriate me measures according to each stage. And secondly, um, it is also dependent on the trade-off between medical uh, argumentation and more economic and societal argumentation. So um, that that is always uh, the trade-off that you have to make. As you heard, we are currently in the phase of loosening measures, though the condition to loosening measures is that the country is able to quickly respond to future outbreaks of the virus. Might it happen again? So how I get it now is that countries decide on a certain approach based on four things. One, the capacity of the hospitals. Two, the stage of the outbreak. Three, the ability to isolate the infected and the trade-off. And four, the trade-off of the country between medical, societal and economic arguments. As lockdown measures are getting less strict, and as time goes on, and as the curve is being flattened, there will potentially be more cross-border traveling. Much of our economy depends on travel, such as trade and tourism. But is it smart to increase travel between countries? Especially if one country has more immunity build-up amongst the population than the other, or if their approaches are fundamentally different. That's an interesting point. We've already discussed the Netherlands, which has a much less strict lockdown compared to some of its neighboring countries. Many other countries I know of focus on preventing the healthcare system from being overburdened, and their approach seems to want to eradicate the disease almost entirely. In theory, if a person from a country with herd immunity travels to a country with a strict lockdown where there is no herd immunity, they could cause an outbreak. But are the lockdowns really that different across countries? It may appear that way, but in reality, the difference in measures are quite small. I'm wondering if it is really smart for every country to take a different approach. Wouldn't it be more efficient if there was one central approach for every country in, for example, the European Union? That would give more clarity to its citizens as well, as it creates confusion over which approach is the most effective. Actually, in the interview with Yapcode, he mentioned that this is more difficult than most people think. Let's listen to what he said. Yes, um, the traveling and, and um, 
the globalization is uh, causing spread of the disease. Um, and therefore, it is very important that countries uh, try to harmonize their approach in how to uh, tackle the, the pandemic. We don't have any uh, super national government that uh, determines how we should uh, all address the, the epidemic. Um, the WHO only has an advisory role and a technical role in uh, giving uh, countries tools on how to control the epidemic, uh, but the WHO doesn't have any decision power. Also, the United Nations uh, at a higher level, the, the Security Council, does not have any right to prescribe to countries on, on how to tackle uh, pandemics. Uh, but even in European Union, um, health is uh, not part of the uh, trade uh, uh, union and is not part of the um, mandate of European uh, Union. So um, every country can have its own health policy and, and practice. Um, and that's what you see now in this uh, uh, epidemic that, for example, Belgium closes the border with the Netherlands because the government disagrees with the way the Dutch government is handling it. Though if you look in practice that the measures are more or less the same, they are maybe uh, packaged a, a bit differently, but uh, they are not that much apart. Um, so the only uh, obligations that country have according to the international health regulations is to inform each other um, and to take measures, um, but what exactly the measures are um, is not prescribed by any um, supranational structure. Oh, that is disappointing. Perhaps supranational organizations such as the UN, the WHO and the EU should have more power then. However, that is another heated discussion. In general, Countries should cooperate and discuss more about taking a common approach to fighting pandemics in the future. This would decrease the amount of confusion or the trust issues citizens can have with their government. I think you were mentioning another very important point just now. Trust issues, uncertainties. We've heard these words a couple of times now and I also think that our listeners still might have some burning questions. Yes, I can imagine that. There are still a lot of open questions, especially because experts and scientists discover new details about COVID-19 daily or have to revise something they have said earlier. There are also so many reports and news messages every day with sometimes even contradicting information. I've noticed that too. It makes it really difficult to know who and which information to trust. How can we as citizens get the correct information? What should we do about that? Luckily, Yabcode is an expert on health literacy, which is the ability to understand and inform oneself about health in order to make appropriate decisions. So we asked him what he would recommend to do in situations of excessive and sometimes contradicting information. Yeah, with regard to information about this pandemic uh, of COVID-19, it is of course uh, very difficult. First of all, uh, we are dealing with a, a new disease uh, and there is no handbook for unknown disease. So uh, we are all experimenting. Um, with, with regard to, to the information, indeed sometimes um, it is uh, confusing uh, because we, we, we learn um, as we uh, are developing the, the epidemic. But uh, with regard to um, this type of diseases, there are some, some very clear uh, measures like hygiene is, is crucial, washing your hands, um, keeping distance from other people. When you feel sick, stay at home, don't go out, don't get in touch with other people. Um, some of those um, general measures are, are the same for corona as for uh, flu. 
so um, there is not, not much difference. But of course, um, where the difference comes in is uh, when you want to um, really reduce transmission and want to take public measures. Uh, and there you see many different approaches uh, in, in countries. Like you said, uh, we, we in the Netherlands have a bit liberal, intelligent lockdown. In, in other countries, they have uh, much more stricter uh, regulations. In Sweden, they had even uh, more um, relaxed approach. Um, so that depends very much on how the national governments uh, uh, and their advisors weigh uh, the different measures. Um, and, and we are all learning by doing. For example, when this epidemic started, um, we did not know that people with chronic diseases uh, and um, um, over 70 um, and with overweight were, were so much more vulnerable than, than others. Um, we did not know how this virus would uh, affect uh, young children. So now, uh, with what we right now know about the virus and how it spreads, um, maybe we would have done some things differently. So it is learning by doing, and that makes uh, communication very difficult uh, in, in COVID-19. Um, and uh, what is more difficult um, is now um, opening up and, and which kind of activities um, can be allowed without uh, going back into a, a full-blown epidemic again. Um, and of course, one important issue was the, the testing. We did not have the tests when we started uh, with the epidemic. Now we can test much more so you can take other measures. So that uh, leads to confusion sometimes for the general public to know. But if you ask uh, what are reliable uh, sources and information, then there, there is uh, the RIVM website, the Ministry of Health website, not only in the Netherlands, but also in other countries, there, there are government websites that, that are reliable. Uh, if you just trust on what floats uh, on uh, Twitter or Instagram or other social media, you may be uh, m more confused by people who don't know what they are talking about. So if you look for reliable information, look at the government websites that uh, provide information. And with this, we would like to come to the end of today's podcast. Although we maybe could not answer all your questions, given the lack of information on this very new virus, we hope to have clarified the concept of herd immunity. It is not a strategy or aim one can pursue, but rather a natural equilibrium state that most likely will develop sooner or later. And when herd immunity exists in a population, it will prevent the further spread of the disease. This will especially help protect vulnerable groups. Furthermore, it is important to be aware of how immunity is measured if we talk about achieving a level of immunity in the population. Additionally, since countries take different approaches to dealing with the virus, cross-border traveling is an issue we should be critical about. Deciding on an approach to handle the virus for country depends on many factors and is a difficult thing to do. However, I think we can safely state that at this point of time, full herd immunity against COVID-19 is unrealistic. Protecting the vulnerable people while attaining a 70% immunity in the population is a textbook approach, as Jaap Goat pointed out. That is also why the Dutch government stated that building herd immunity is not a goal in itself, although it could have been communicated more effectively. In general, the idea behind it is good, but if done without a vaccine, it requires a lot of time and poses the risk for people to su suffer from severe side effects of the disease or even die. And regarding a vaccine and generally immunity, there is still a high uncertainty due to the lack of, of research. We do not know how soon we could get a vaccine to be used for creating herd immunity. And even if we did, there would be the question of different variations of the virus 
and the question of whether people might lose immunity to the virus over time. Therefore, both governments and experts want to control the virus to minimize fatalities. However, the government would have a more lenient approach compared to virologists due to the trade-off of the economy with the capacity of controlling the disease. The load of information that can sometimes differ and the different approaches between countries or different opinions within a country can create lots of confusion. Now that you have seen the possibilities and limitations of the current immunity situation on COVID-19, it is up to you to form an opinion on what you think the trade-off should be. We have hopefully given you enough information and perspectives to do so. If you would like to know more about COVID-19, make sure you use trustworthy sources. We would recommend the WHO or the Health Institute of your own country. If you think this topic was interesting, here's some food for thought. The very opposite approach to dealing with a virus would be to eliminate the virus so that, so that it finally will go extinct. However, is that possible in a society like ours? What would be the costs? How long would it take? And what does the role of a vaccine play in that case? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UCF podcast on COVID-19. In this episode, you were listening to Kari, Lena, and our guest speaker, Yab Kote. We are very grateful he gave us his professional perception of the current situation. This podcast has been made possible with the help of Yurian and Anastasia. Thank you for your attention. If you have any comments or questions about this podcast, please leave a review and we will get in contact with you as soon as possible. Hopefully until next time. For now, we wish you good health and a good day.